This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... China has been cited by the Secretary-General himself as engaging in a pattern of reprisals against those who engage with the UN previously. High Commissioner Bachelet will be the first UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to set foot in China in 17 years. The whole architecture of human rights that has been built up since World War II cannot simply be chiseled away progressively in the way that China and others are trying. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. Now, of course, as we record today's programme, the headlines are rightly dominated by the war in Ukraine. Our regular listeners know we talked about Russia's invasion and its dreadful consequences in our last episode. And in our next episode, we'll be talking to UN aid agencies about the challenge of this new humanitarian crisis. But there are other important issues we need to talk about. Right now, the UN Human Rights Council is in session, and one topic which really was supposed to be at the top of the council's agenda was China. Chinese government's intention is very clear. They want to get rid of the Uyghur Islam. They want to uh, get rid of Uyghur ethnic heritage. And its actions in Xinjiang. There, rights defenders say over a million Uyghur Muslims are being held in internment camps. So will the council take on China? Or is the UN too timid in the face of Beijing's power? That's what we're going to discuss today. And to join me, I'm delighted to have Sophie Richardson, China Director at Human Rights Watch, Phil Lynch, Director of the International Service for Human Rights, and my colleague Nick Cumming-Bruce, contributor to the New York Times, right here in Geneva. I am pleased to announce that we have recently reached an agreement with the government of China for a visit. Hence, my office and the government of China have initiated concrete preparations for a visit that is foreseen will take place in May of this year. Now you heard it there. Michelle Bachelet says she is going to China after years in which successive UN Human Rights Commissioners asked to visit and were kind of put off, delayed. We finally got what sounded like a yes just in the last couple of weeks. So it did come as a bit of a surprise, certainly to us journalists here in Geneva. Phil, I'm going to ask you first, what is your take from the human rights perspective on this announcement? Well, I'm not sure that it's a yes in the sense of a yes, the High Commissioner is welcome to visit and will be provided with unfettered access and the visit will be able to be undertaken on terms which enable proper investigation of substantive human rights issues, independent reporting and progress towards accountability for prima facie evidence of uh, crimes against humanity, possibly even amounting to genocide in, in, in Xinjiang province. I think we're a long way from getting a a, a yes on a visit which meets some of those basic terms. Am I surprised that the High Commissioner is um, continuing to negotiate with China around the prospects of a visit or, or, to frame it alternatively, am I surprised that China continues to hold out the prospects of a visit to the High Commissioner as a means to avoid the High Commissioner actually fulfilling her mandate and reporting independently and robustly on the situation? Not at all. They play a very smart diplomatic game. What about you, Sophie? I mean, I, I, I can see you already looking a bit sceptical. It was announced with a certain amount of fanfare in Geneva. 
And yet immediately, as Phil said, questions start to arrive. What exactly are the modalities of this visit going to be? I wish we knew. One of the problems is that we don't. And it's not clear precisely what's been agreed. It's not clear what is on the itinerary or who. And all of this comes against, I think, two important dynamics to sketch out. One is that if this visit goes ahead as planned in May, High Commissioner Bachelet will be the first UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to set foot in China in 17 years, which is important because I think it raises questions about expectations of the High Commissioner or the office itself setting the terms of this visit and what it can hope to accomplish. But it also comes at a time when the High Commissioner has not opened her doors to uh, members of communities of victims and survivors from across not just the Uyghur region, Tibetans, people from Hong Kong. This particular term in office has not been one uh, that's left a lot of room for input by the most affected people. We, we are struggling to understand why there is such deference to Beijing rather than to the people who are the High Commissioner's constituents. We're going to come on to the reasons and also wider UN suggestions that there's some deference to Beijing in a moment. But Nick, we as journalists in Geneva, we've also been waiting. Almost every briefing we go to, somebody asks, so what about China? How are you getting on? And then all of a sudden, I have to say, when I kind of least expected it, this announcement comes. How do you think this is being received among among the, the press in Geneva? Well, I think with surprise, for all the obvious reasons, it's just extremely difficult. When you look at the, the very shrill denunciations that come from Beijing anytime anybody utters a word of criticism of its human rights record, it's really difficult to see how there is any expectation that she can conduct a visit that would meet the requirements of a high commissioner's visit for the kind of issues that um, Phil has already identified. I think we're waiting for some evidence that she's actually prepared to identify the parameters of her visit. I mean, she said in her original statement, a a visit has been agreed and that they're now going to work on the concrete preparations. Well, given that we cannot expect her to, in the rather limited space of time, carry out any serious investigation of the reality of human rights in China. What is it that she's actually going for? And and that's one of the big questions that we, we need her to answer. Well, this is a very sticky wicket, isn't it? We have been told, I have been told personally by people inside the UN Human Rights Office, there's no way we're going unless the modalities that we have set from the start are honored, free and unfettered access. How are we ever going to know? Phil? So I think the, the conditions, it, it's not just about free and unfettered access. That That is critical, but there are other conditions that must be met too. Another is that there be a guarantee against any form of intimidation or reprisal against victims, survivors, human rights defenders or civil society actors who meet with the High Commissioner. China has been cited by the Secretary General himself as engaging in a pattern of reprisals against those who engage with the UN previously. It is imperative that uh, guarantees against intimidation or reprisal be, be provided. One of the most recent special rapporteur country visits to, to China was, of course, undertaken by Philip Alston, the then special rapporteur on extreme poverty. And following his visit, he expressed serious concern around a range of issues, one of which was reprisals, another of which was 
uh, being tailed by security and intelligence uh, officials, another of which was lack of confidentiality in the meetings that he had with civil society. So they're all conditions which also need to be met. Civil society meetings need to be confidential. There uh, needs to be a, an absolute prohibition on any tailing or surveillance by security or intelligence officials. So it's, it's not just about uh, unfettered access. As, as I said at the, the outset, it's difficult to see how this is anything other than a diplomatic ploy by China to continue to delay what the High Commission should be doing, which is releasing an independent report on the situation in Xinjiang based on substantial volumes of testimony and other verified and, and reputable evidence. Distinguished President, Excellencies, colleagues and friends, the United Nations and this Council stand for the human rights of the world's peoples. As hundreds of thousands of Muslims disappear into giant secure facilities, China has begun taking a few selected journalists inside. Sophie, I see you nodding there and I did want to ask about that report because that's the thing that journalists like Nick and I have been asking about as well for ages and ages. There is a report the UN Human Rights Commissioner was asked to make on Xinjiang that apparently has been ready since August. Still not out. No reason not to release it. And, you know, just on, on the point about timing, it seems that one of the driving variables here perhaps was waiting until after the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics were over. Well, that's uh, been denied, to be fair, to... Uh, those concerned. <laughs> They've denied lots of things. Uh, but there's absolutely no reason that, uh, you know, she couldn't release it tomorrow to make room, for example, for an intersessional debate with HRC member states. This is something that we have all urged at that report, which we understand to be strong. It's based on interviews and a very solid review of existing materials. There's no reason not to publish it right away. But I want to add you know, to the point that, that Phil just made about uh, Philip Alston's visit. Let's look at the converse, too. Let's look at the special procedures or the independent experts who actually have been allowed to go to China in the last couple of years. None of them either did or tried to do anything above and beyond the agenda that was offered to them by Chinese authorities. And I think that has probably given the Ministry of Foreign Affairs a basis to be able to say, See, you know, these, these most recent people from your universe have followed exactly the rules that we laid down and we expect you to do the following. And the onus really is on the high commissioner herself to explain exactly not just what she intends to do, but also what she's told she can't do and to build in off ramps to leave if, as was the case for Professor Alston, the visit is proving to just be a Potemkin tour. Can we, Nick have some understanding for Michelle Bachelet, though, as Sophie said, first visit in 17 years, she's actually got one. I mean, maybe she's thinking, I need to go there. I need to make the most of this. She's she's almost treading a very fine line being saying, okay, I'm going and I'm going to have a really hard look and participating in something which, and I hate to coin a phrase, but it feels a bit like rights washing. Very hard to say. I mean, we, we come back to what are the the purposes of the visit. Um, you know, she's a politician. She's a realist. She's lived in the real hard world. She's going to a state that tops the list for reprisals against human rights defenders and has one of the most sophisticated surveillance apparatuses in the world. So how, how does she think she's going to be able to conduct 
meaningful engagement on human rights issues that China will not allow anyone to discuss. So what's she going for? When she was president of Chile, she went to Beijing twice. She's had lots of engagement, person face-to-face engagement with Xi Jinping. Maybe she thinks that there is something that she can pull out of the hat in terms of perhaps opening up a, an OHCHR presence in Beijing that would present some kind of diplomatic gain from the visit. But it's it's really impossible to see how, in the space of a few days, she can provide any value added to the kind of research that is in that report that's in her office and which she refuses to release. Would that be the better course of action, Sophie, perhaps, and, and then Phil, to release that report and then say, come on, Beijing, look, I've released it. I've got this report. Now you should let me in. We're certainly of the view that she must release this report and that to take the trip without having released the report really runs the risk of not just significantly compromising the integrity of the office, but of effectively selling down the river all of the victims and survivors of Chinese government human rights violations across the country. Her job, her main function in this universe (laughs) is to document and advocate for solutions to human rights violations as endured by victims, right? That's at the top of the list. And that's not what's happening here. Extreme surveillance, accounts of torture, and the detention of up to a million Uyghur It's all part of what seems to be China's attempt at eradicating the Uyghur identity from its borders. I would fully agree with Sophie. I think that if she publishes the report, it can make for a much more substantive visit. If the report is published, we as civil society will have more confidence in the integrity of the visit. Um, There is some substance to then discuss in the context of of the visit. And as Sophie said, regardless of of the visit, she will have fulfilled her mandate to stand with victims and report on on violations. Um, The other thing I think could very much increase the integrity of a a visit and and confidence in a visit is if um, she didn't go alone, but she took with her not only members of the Secretariat, but other uh, independent experts, such as some of the special procedures mandated by the Human Rights Council, like the Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism or the Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders. So that would send a powerful signal, like we're sending a really credible team. Yeah, I mean, how about taking along the 50 special procedures and independent experts that signed an unprecedented joint statement in June of 2020, calling uh, for the HRC to establish a standing mandate to monitor and report on abuses across China. And look, one of the reasons this matters And one of the reasons why we're concerned about the visit as we currently understand it, let's recall there are two dozen UN agencies with a presence in China sitting in Beijing. And in theory, all of those agencies share one of the UN core pillars, which is to promoting human rights. You don't hear a lot from them, (laughs) you know, which is why for this visit to really be effective We need her to publish the report. We need her to be clear about the terms of reference. We need her to take a strong team. That's what it is going to require to show that OHCHR is up to the challenge of holding the second most powerful government in the world accountable according to its mandate. Let's try and unpick that a little bit. Why is it, Nick, that China has seemed over the last few years quite untouchable when it comes to scrutiny 
over human rights. Not, of course, from people like Sophie and Phil, but from the UN mechanisms. Well, I think we're just talking about a state that has used its economic and diplomatic muscles to hugely good effect, to the point where foreign ministers of the Organization of Islamic Countries endorse its policies in Xinjiang, rather than defending the Muslims, the community they should be most interested in, in providing some protection for. China has invested billions of dollars into the continent of Africa to build massive infrastructure projects. They have aggressively leveraged economic muscle in terms of dealing with small African states and even with some European countries. It's often been quite difficult to get coherent European Union responses in the Human Rights Council because of their ability to pick off countries with vulnerable economies. So they've played that game. They've used um, vaccine diplomacy in the course of the COVID pandemic highly effectively. And I think they've gotten away with that so far. But it's a question as to how, how long this can go on. I mean, clearly, some of the states where they have built up some of the strongest positions in terms of economic engagement are also quite resentful and, and are carrying debt that they can't sustain. So these issues are going to be tested. And there is clearly some resentment among small African states of being bullied into submission on diplomatic positions. Phil, I saw you had your hand up, so I'll come to you next and then Sophie. But one thing I suppose I did want to say, listening to the conversation so far, is of course I am quite conscious there is nobody from China on this programme. And we should, I suppose, be aware that there are a wide variety of opinions in China. We don't hear all of them all of the time, of course. Phil, I suppose you know people in China. There are human rights defenders in China. So we shouldn't just dismiss the entire country as a negative. Absolutely. I mean, to, to be clear, ISHR's issue is, is very much with the Chinese Communist Party. It's, it's certainly not with the people of China. And there are many, many brave human rights defenders working in China uh, and from China working uh, in, in exile in relation to, to China. One of the reasons we, we don't hear as much of them as we would like to is precisely because China engages in such a widespread strategy of intimidation and reprisals against those who speak out. Those who speak out are systematically disappeared, detained, tortured and ill-treated. Not only that, but over the last years, we've, we've witnessed a real expansion of the net so that it's not just rights defenders themselves, but lawyers who defend them family members, friends, associates, they're all targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. But coming also to the point around China's untouchability, it, there's, there's no doubt, as Nick said, that China has very effectively used its economic and diplomatic muscle to really colonise, co-opt and instrumentalise the human rights system over the last five to ten years. But they're far from untouchable. As, as Sophie said earlier, there was an unprecedented group of special procedures, 50 special procedures, who issued a joint statement on the human rights situation in China and concerned not only about prima facie evidence of crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, but also uh, the um, misuse and abuse of national security legislation in Hong Kong, the widespread disappearance and arbitrary detention of human rights defenders and lawyers, uh, the so-called system of residential surveillance at a designated location. So special procedures have stepped up to the plate. Treaty bodies have, have stepped up to the plate and made um, very 
clear and strong uh, observations in relation to China. Even states themselves, we've had joint statements at both the Human Rights Council and at the General Assembly by an increasingly large and diverse group of states calling attention to the human rights situation in China. The one office that hasn't yet stepped up to the plate in, in our view is that of the High Commissioner herself. And her report, I think, would substantially assist the Human Rights Council to take the necessary next step of mandating an international independent monitoring mechanism on human rights in China. This commitment of China to multilateralism is today more necessary than ever. Do you agree with that, Sophie, that the problem is kind of at the top of UN human rights? I mean, I've also heard criticism of around the, the Secretary General as well, that there could be more work done there. Yeah, I, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle to add in, that the Secretary General himself has been quite weak on Chinese government human rights violations broadly in Xinjiang in particular, given the magnitude of the abuses. But one other, I think, complicating reality, I, I certainly take Nick's point about the economic resources the Chinese government will use to uh, you know, ensure votes in a certain direction. But I think there are also very few other governments that expend such resources literally on exploiting every last teeny tiny little corner of the UN human rights system, whether it's, you know, Byzantine budgetary disputes about whether peacekeeping operations should have a human rights component all the way through to tinkering with language in resolutions. We've been encouraging the governments that are concerned about these kinds of issues to form some sort of longer term coalition or project that outlasts any given democracy's administration to try to insulate the UN's human rights system from this kind of pressure because it takes enormous resources and a much longer term vision. And we're afraid that if, if democracies don't focus on that now, what's left from 10 years from now won't just be adequate for the task of holding the Chinese government accountable for human rights violations. It's going to be a lot more difficult to hold any government accountable for serious human rights violations. That's an interesting point. I mean, Nick, we've seen that over the years with the UN Human Rights Council, this kind of tinkering. But basically, where it's coming from is a, is a different ideological view of what human rights actually mean you know, this collective versus the individual. People like Sophie and Phil have been warning us for ages, this is, is a quite insidious undermining of what we said 70 odd years ago were fundamental values. They seem to have a very coherent and systematic long-term strategy. You know, they come to the Human Rights Council with resolutions that sound incredibly innocuous and they get some pushback on that, but they keep trying. I think one of the disappointing things is it's not just the High Commissioner who has been perhaps less articulate on abuses, human rights abuses in China. There's also a question mark over the Secretary General and the fact that we've been able to see China essentially supporting the build-up of a strong kind of counter-terrorism office in UN headquarters, so that we actually had, I think it was the Russian head of counterterrorism for the UN visiting China, making absolutely no reference in his visit a few years ago to any of the concerns about human rights and about the so-called counterterrorism strategies that China was engaging in Xinjiang. And so China is now selling its Xinjiang strategies and, and behavior as a model of good counterterrorism practice. And some countries are buying that. So we need the UN very much to step up and make it clear to all countries as a neutral party 
that the values that were enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the whole architecture of human rights that has been built up since World War II cannot simply be chiseled away progressively in the way that China and others are trying. The White House says the U.S. is watching China's actions closely as Russia reportedly asked Beijing for military aid. Let's get right up to date then. What about China's possible influence on Russia? Because we're all asking ourselves, could Beijing be the one to tell Moscow the invasion of Ukraine is bang out of order and it's really time to stop? Sophie, I put this to you when we were talking just before the recording of the podcast. You actually didn't have much time for that theory. I don't. The idea that of, of Xi Jinping as an international peacemaker, let's look at this objectively. The only price that she has had to pay in the last couple of weeks for siding with Putin is maybe a little bit more international criticism. He's pretty accustomed to it. He's not too phased by it. You know, and what's not to like about a world in which Russia is stuck buying products from China, China gets full access to, you know, all of the commodities Russia can't sell someplace else. And she also gets to cackle a little bit quietly that, you know, China wins out over Russia in the long run. Let's be clear, she didn't think of now friends. Okay, so let's let's dispel that notion right now. So the idea of this lifelong friendship that, that he and Putin have sworn themselves to isn't, I think, what people think it is. And the idea that Xi Jinping will somehow cast his lot against Putin to side with what people think of as his commitment to state sovereignty. There's just no there's no evidence to suggest that that's the direction he's going to go in. From Greece to Germany, Brussels to London, we'll explore the European connections in China's grand plan. What do you think, Phil? I mean, I was thinking of it more on a very kind of pragmatic economic level. China seeing that its biggest, fattest market, which is kind of Europe, North America, they we're battening down the hatches so we can pay for our fuel prices and all that kind of thing. We're not going to have so much money. Is that not an incentive for China to intervene and then maybe say, oh, look, we were peacemakers, although even it was, it was just a very pragmatic business transaction? I, I think the Chinese Communist Party approaches issues like this very strategically and with a long-term vision and agenda in in mind. And I have no doubt that there is careful analysis going on as to how China can capitalise on on this situation. The Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping will play the role that they best identify as advancing China's long-term power and strategic interests. I think that there are many things to, to, to reflect on in the context of this shocking uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. But one is a, that we need is a, a reflection on the costs of appeasing and doing business with authoritarians and dictators, and that that might have some short-term benefit, but it has serious long-term costs. Um, countries that purport a commitment to human rights have for too long uh, done business with and, and, and acquiesced in and not sufficiently spoken up about serious human rights violations perpetrated by Russia. And that's emboldened and empowered Russia. And we need to be showing the same kind of strategic approach and solidarity in respect of our engagement with China as we are increasingly awakening to in respect of Russia. Nick, can I ask for your opinion on that? Well, its sympathies have been very much with um, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, and it is not helped by amplifying a lot of the disinformation being pumped out of the Kremlin. The only way I could see 
Beijing becoming a significant peacemaker is if it if it can find some platform to establish itself as uh, and present itself as a, as a great peacemaker. And it's difficult in the current context to see that happening. Okay, well, we seem to come to the conclusion in this conversation that we're not very confident about a credible UN human rights trip to China. Human rights activists like Sophie and Phil have not really heard and seen the kind of things they would like to see from the world's top human rights body, UN Human Rights. So what now could Michelle Bachelet do to restore confidence? Phil, you first. I think she could meet with Chinese human rights defenders in circumstances which assure their protection, confidentiality and freedom from reprisals, to hear firsthand from them what their priorities and protection needs are. She could release her report, which shows um, a seriousness about addressing the human rights issues in China and promoting accountability. And she could make public the core minimum conditions of any visit, informed by discussions with Chinese human rights defenders, which should, at a minimum, include unfettered access, uh, confidential meetings with civil society, guarantees against reprisals, and that she be accompanied in her visit by other special procedures experts. Nick? Well, I could hardly add to that list. I think that's absolutely right. And I think she also needs, before she goes, to be very transparent about what it is she's going to do and how she's going to do it and the conditions that she has agreed with Beijing for the visit to take place, because China's track record does not stack the odds in favour of a meaningful visit. Sophie, final words to you? Sure, I'll add two things to that list. The first is to announce an initiative to gather information from Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz across the world who want to share the details of missing family members and that the office will commit to compiling that and finding those individuals. But also she could announce her support for the establishment of a standing mandate on China. Okay, well, I will add just my words to our support, Nick, release the report and tell us journalists exactly what your modalities are for this trip and maybe take a couple of us with you. To my guests, Sophie Richardson, Phil Lynch and Nick Cumming-Bruce, thank you very much. This has been Inside Geneva. Thank you all for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. 
we uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Thank you.